Part 19 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, August the 5th, 1854. Chapter 33 Day and night again, day and night again. No, Stephen Blackpool, where was the man, and why did he not come back? Every night Sissy went to Rachel's lodging and sat with her in her small neat room. All day Rachel toiled as such people must toil, whatever their anxieties. The smoke serpents were indifferent who was lost or found, who turned out bad or good. The melancholy mad elephants, like the hard fact men, abated nothing of their set routine, whatever happened. Day and night again, day and night again. The monotony was unbroken. Even Stephen Blackpool's disappearance was falling into the general way and becoming as monotonous a wonder as any piece of machinery in Coketown. I misdoubt, said Rachel, if there is as many as twenty left in all this place who have any trust in the poor dear lad now. She said it to Sissy as they sat in her lodging, lighted only by the lamp at the street corner. Sissy had come there when it was already dark to await her return from work, and they had since sat at the window where Rachel had found her, wanting no brighter light to shine on their sorrowful talk. "'If it hadn't been mercifully brought about that I was to have you to speak to,' pursued Rachel, "'times are when I think my mind would not have kept right. But I get hope and strength through you, and you believe that though appearances may rise against him, he will be proved clear.' I do believe so, returned Sissy, with my whole heart. I feel so certain, Rachel, that the confidence you hold in yours against all discouragement is not like to be wrong, that I have no more doubt of him than if I'd known him through as many years of trial as you have. And I, my dear, said Rachel with a tremble in her voice, have known him through them all to be, according to his quiet ways, so faithful to everything honest and good that if he was never to be heard of more, and I was to live to be a hundred years old, I could say with my last breath, God knows my heart, I've never once left trusting Stephen Blackpool. We all believe, up at the lodge, Rachel, that he will be freed from suspicion sooner or later. The better I know it to be so believed there, my dear, said Rachel, and the kinder I feel it that you come away from there, purposely to comfort me, and keep me company and be seen with me when I'm not yet free from all suspicion myself. The more grieved I am that I should ever have spoken those mistrusting words to the young lady. And yet, you don't mistrust her now, Rachel. Now that you've brought us more together, no. But I can't at all times keep out of my mind. Her voice so sunk into a low and slow communing with herself that Sissy, sitting by her side, was obliged to listen with attention. I can't at all times keep out of my mind mistrustings of someone. I can't think who tis. I can't think how or why it may be done. But I mistrust that someone has put Stephen out of the way. I mistrust that by his coming back of his own accord and showing himself innocent before them all, someone will be confounded, who, to prevent that, has stopped him and put him out of the way. That's a dreadful thought said Sissy, turning pale. It is a dreadful thought to think he may be murdered. 
Sissy shuddered and turned paler yet. "'When it makes its way into my mind, dear,' said Rachel, "'and it will come sometimes, though I do all I can to keep it out, we counting on to high numbers as a work, and saying over and over again pieces that I knew when I were a child. I fall into such a wild, hot hurry, that however tired I am, I want to walk fast, miles and miles. I must get the better of this before bedtime. I'll walk home with you.' "'He might fall ill upon the journey back,' said Sissy, faintly offering a worn-out scrap of hope, "'and in such a case there are many places on the road where he might stop. "'But he is in none of them. He has been sought for in all, and he's not there.' "'True,' was Sissy's reluctant admission. "'He'd walk the journey in two days. "'If he was foot-sore and couldn't walk, "'I sent him in the letter he got the money to ride, "'lest he should have none of his own to spare.' Let's hope that tomorrow morning will bring something better, Rachel. Come into the air. Her gentle hand adjusted Rachel's shawl upon her shining black hair in the usual manner of her wearing it, and they went out. The night being fine, little knots of hands were here and there lingering at street corners, but it was supper-time with the greater part of them, and there were but few people in the streets. You're not so hurried now, Rachel, and your hand is cooler. I get better, dear, if I can only walk and breathe a little fresh. Times when I can't, I turn weak and confused. But you must not begin to fail, Rachel, for you may be wanted at any time to stand by Stephen. Tomorrow is Saturday. If no news comes tomorrow, let us walk in the country on Sunday morning and strengthen you for another week. Will you go? Yes, dear. They were by this time in the street, where Mr Bounderby's house stood. The way to Sissy's destination led them past the door, and they were going straight towards it. Some train had newly arrived in Coketown, which had put a number of vehicles in motion and scattered a considerable bustle about the town. Several coaches were rattling before them and behind them as they approached Mr Bounderby's, and one of the latter drew up with such briskness as they were in the act of passing the house that they looked round involuntarily. The bright gaslight over Mr. Bounderby's steps showed them Mrs. Sparsit in the coach, in an ecstasy of excitement, struggling to open the door. Mrs. Sparsit, seeing them at the same moment, called to them to stop. "'It's a coincidence!' exclaimed Mrs. Sparsit as she was released by the coachman. "'It's a providence!' "'Come out, ma'am,' then said Mrs. Sparsit to someone inside. "'Come out. We'll have you dragged out.' Hereupon, no other than the mysterious old woman descended, whom Mrs. Sparsit incontinently collared. "'Leave her alone, everybody!' cried Mrs. Sparsit with great energy. "'Let nobody touch her. She belongs to me. Come in, ma'am.' Then said Mrs. Sparsit, reversing her former word of command, "'Come in, ma'am. We'll have you dragged in.' The spectacle of a matron of classical deportment, seizing an ancient woman by the throat, and hailing her into a dwelling-house, would have been, under any circumstances, sufficient temptation to all true English stragglers, so blessed as to witness it, to force a way into that dwelling-house, and see the matter out. But when the phenomenon was enhanced by the notoriety and mystery, by this time associated all over the town with the bank robbery, it would have lured the stragglers in, with an irresistible attraction, though the roof had been expected to fall upon their heads. Accordingly, the chance witnesses on the ground, consisting of the busiest of the neighbours to the number of some five and twenty, 
closed in after Sissy and Rachel, as they closed in after Mrs. Sparsett and her prize, and the whole body made a disorderly eruption into Mr. Bounderby's dining-room, where the people behind lost not a moment's time in mounting on the chairs to get a better view, to get the better of the people in front. "'Fetch Mr. Bounderby down!' cried Mrs. Sparsett. "'Rachel, young woman, you know who this is?' "'It's Mrs. Pegler,' said Rachel. "'I should think it is,' cried Mrs. Sparsett, exulting. "'Fetch Mr. Bounderby. Stand away, everybody.' Here old Mrs. Pegler, muffling herself up and shrinking from observation, whispered a word of entreaty. "'Don't tell me,' said Mrs. Sparsett aloud. "'I have told you twenty times coming along that I will not leave you until I have handed you over to him myself.' Mr. Bounderby now appeared, accompanied by Mr. Gradgrind and the whelp, with whom he had been holding conference upstairs. Mr. Bounderby looked more astonished than hospitable at the sight of this uninvited party in his dining-room. "'Why, what's the matter now?' said he. "'Mrs. Sparsett, ma'am.' "'Sir,' explained that worthy woman, "'I trust it is my good fortune to produce a person you have much desired to find. "'Stimulated by my wish to relieve your mind, sir, "'and connecting together such imperfect clues to the part of the country "'in which that person might be supposed to reside, "'as have been afforded by the young woman Rachel,' fortunately now present to identify i have had the happiness to succeed and to bring that person with me i need not say most unwillingly on her part it has not been sir without some trouble that i have effected this but trouble in your service is to me a pleasure and hunger thirst and cold a real gratification here mrs sparsett ceased for Mr. Bounderby's visage exhibited an extraordinary combination of all possible colours and expressions of discomfiture, as old Mrs. Pegler was disclosed to his view. "'Why, what do you mean by this?' was his highly unexpected demand in great wrath. "'I ask you, what do you mean by this, Mrs. Sparsett, ma'am?' "'Sir,' exclaimed Mrs. Sparsett faintly, "'why don't you mind your own business, ma'am?' roared Bounderby. How dare you go and poke your officious nose into my family affairs? The allusion to her favourite feature overpowered Mrs. Sparsett. She sat down stiffly in a chair as if she were frozen, and with a fixed stare at Mr. Bounderby, slowly grated her mittens against one another as if they were frozen too. My dear Josiah, cried Mrs. Pegler, trembling, my darling boy, I'm not to blame. It's not my fault, Josiah. I told this lady over and over again that I knew she was doing what would not be agreeable to you, but she would do it. What did you let her bring you for? Couldn't you knock her cap off, or a tooth out, a scratcher, or do something or other to her? asked Bounderby. My own boy. She threatened me that if I resisted her, I should be brought by constables. "'and it was better to come quietly than make that stir in such a—' "'Mrs. Pegler glanced timidly but proudly round the walls. "'Such a fine house as this! "'Indeed, indeed, it is not my fault. "'My dear, noble, stately boy! "'I've always lived quiet and secret, Josiah, my dear. "'I've never broken the condition once. "'I've never said that I was your mother. "'I've admired you at a distance.' "'and if I've come to town sometimes, with long times between, "'to take a proud peep at you, 
I've done it unbeknown, my love, and gone away again. Mr. Bounderby, with his hands in his pockets, walked in impatient mortification up and down at the side of the long dining-table, while the spectators greedily took in every syllable of Mrs. Pegler's appeal, and at each succeeding syllable became more and more round-eyed. Mr. Bounderby, still walking up and down when Mrs. Pegler had done, Mr. Gradgrind addressed that maligned old lady. "'I am surprised, madam,' he observed with severity, "'that in your old age you have the face to claim Mr. Bounderby for your son, "'after your unnatural and inhuman treatment of him.' "'Me? Unnatural?' cried poor old Mrs. Pegler. "'Me? Inhuman? To my dear boy?' "'Dear,' repeated Mr. Gradgrind, "'yes, dear in his self-made prosperity, madam, I dare say. "'Not very dear, however, when you deserted him in his infancy,' and left him to the brutality of a drunken grandmother. "'I deserted my Josiah,' cried Mrs. Pegler, clasping her hands. "'Now, Lord forgive you, sir, for your wicked imaginations, and for your scandal against the memory of my poor mother, who died in my arms before Josiah was born. May you repent of it, sir, and live to know better.' She was so very earnest and injured that Mr. Gradgrind, shocked by the possibility which dawned upon him, said, in a gentler tone, "'Do you deny, then, madam, that you left your son to be brought up in the gutter?' "'Josiah, in the gutter!' exclaimed Mrs. Pegler. "'No such thing, sir, never! For shame on you! My dear boy knows, and he will give you to know, that though he come of humble parents, he come of parents that loved him as dear as the best could.' and never thought it hardship on themselves to pinch a bit that he might write and cipher beautiful, and have his books at home to show it. Aye, have I, said Mrs. Pegler with indignant pride. And my dear boy knows, and will give you to know, sir, that after his beloved father died when he was eight years old, his mother too could pinch a bit, as it was her duty and her pleasure and her pride to do it, to help him out in life and put him prentice. And a steady lad he was, and a kind master he had to lend him a hand, and well he worked his own way forward to be rich and thriving. And I'll give you to know, sir, for this my dear boy won't, that though his mother kept but a little village shop, he never forgot her, but pensioned me on thirty pound a year, more than I want, for I put by out of it, only making the condition that I was to keep down in my own part, and make no boasts about him, and not trouble him, and I never have, "'except with looking at him once a year when he has never knowed it.' "'And it's right,' said poor old Mrs. Pegler, in an affectionate championship, "'that I should keep down in my own part, "'and I have no doubts that if I was here I should do her many unbefitting things. "'And I'm well contented, and I can keep me pride in my Josiah to myself, "'and I can love for love's own sake. "'And I'm ashamed of you, sir,' said Mrs. Pegler lastly, "'for your slanders and suspicions.' "'and I never stood here before, nor never wanted to stand here when my dear son said no, "'and I shouldn't be here now if it hadn't been for being brought here. "'And for shame upon you, oh, for shame, to accuse me of being a bad mother to my son, "'with my son standing here to tell you so different.' "'The bystanders, on and off the dining-room chairs, raised a murmur of sympathy with Mrs. Pegler, and Mr. Gradgrind felt himself innocently placed in a very distressing predicament, when Mr. Bounderby, who had never ceased walking up and down, 
and had every moment swelled larger and larger and grown redder and redder stopped short i don't exactly know said mr bounderby how i come to be favoured with the attendance of the present company but i don't inquire when they're quite satisfied perhaps they'll be so good as to disperse whether they're satisfied or not perhaps they'll be so good as to disperse i'm not bound to deliver a lecture on my family affairs i've not undertaken to do it and i'm not going to do it therefore those who expect any explanation whatever upon that branch of the subject will be disappointed particularly tom gradgrind and he can't know it too soon in reference to the bank robbery there has been a mistake made concerning my mother if there hadn't been over officiousness it wouldn't have been made and i hate over officiousness at all times whether or no good evening although mr bounderby carried it off in these terms holding the door open for the company to depart there was a blustering sheepishness upon him at once extremely crestfallen and superlatively absurd detected as the bully of humility who had built his windy reputation upon lies and in his boastfulness had put the honest truth as far away from him as if he had advanced the mean claim there is no meaner to tack himself on to a pedigree he cut a most ridiculous figure with the people filing off at the door he held who he knew would carry what had passed to the whole town to be given to the four winds he could not have looked a bully more shorn and forlorn if he had had his ears cropped even that unlucky female mrs sparsett fallen from her pinnacle of exultation into the slough of despond was not in so bad a plight as that remarkable man and self-made humbug josiah bounderby of corktown rachel and sissy leaving mrs pegler to occupy a bed at her son's for that night walked together to the gate of stone lodge and there parted mr gradgrind joined them before they had gone very far and spoke with much interest of stephen blackpool for whom he thought this signal failure of the suspicious against mrs pegler was likely to work well as to the whelp throughout this scene as on all other late occasions he had stuck close to bounderby he seemed to feel that as long as bounderby could make no discovery without his knowledge he was so far safe he never visited his sister and had only seen her once since she went home that is to say on the night when he still stuck close to bounderby as already related there was one dim unformed fear lingering about his sister's mind to which he never gave utterance which surrounded the graceless and ungrateful boy with a dreadful mystery the same dark possibility had presented itself in the same shapeless guise this very day to sissy when rachel spoke of someone who would be confounded by stephen's return having put him out of the way louisa had never spoken of harbouring any suspicion of her brother in connection with the robbery she and sissy had held no confidence on the subject save in that one interchange of looks when the unconscious father rested his grey head on his hand but it was understood between them and they both knew it this other fear was so awful that it hovered about each of them like a ghostly shadow neither daring to think of its being near herself far less of its being near the other and still the forced spirit which the whelp had plucked up throve with him if stephen blackpool was not the thief let him show himself why didn't he another night another day and night 
no Stephen Blackpool. Where was the man, and why did he not come back? Chapter 24 The Sunday was a bright Sunday in autumn, clear and cool, when early in the morning Sissy and Rachel met to walk in the country. As Coketown cast ashes not only on its own head, but on the neighbourhoods too, after the manner of those pious persons who do penance for their own sins by putting other people into sackcloth, it was customary for those who now and then thirsted for a draught of pure air, which is not absolutely the most wicked among the vanities of life, to get a few miles away by the railroad, and then begin their walk or their lounge in the fields. Sissy and Rachel helped themselves out of the smoke by the usual means, and were put down at a station about midway between the town and Mr. Bounderby's retreat. Though the green landscape was blotted here and there with heaps of coal, it was green elsewhere, and there were trees to see, and there were larks singing, though it was Sunday, and there were pleasant scents in the air, and all was overarched by a bright blue sky. In the distance one way, Coketown showed as a black mist. In another distance, hills began to rise. In a third, there was a faint change in the light of the horizon, where it shone upon the far-off sea. Under their feet the grass was fresh. Beautiful shadows of branches flickered upon it and speckled it. Hedgerows were luxuriant. Everything was at peace. Engines at pit's mouths, and lean old horses that had worn the circle of their daily labour into the ground, were alike quiet. Wheels had ceased for a short space to turn and the great wheel of earth seemed to revolve without the shocks and noises of another time. They walked on across the fields and down the shady lanes, sometimes getting over a fragment of a fence so rotten that it dropped at a touch of the foot, sometimes passing near a wreck of bricks and beams overgrown with grass, marking the site of deserted works. They followed paths and tracks, however slight, mounds where the grass was rank and high, and where brambles, dockweed, and such-like vegetation were confusedly heaped together, they always avoided, for dismal stories were told in that country of the old pits hidden beneath such indications. The sun was high when they sat down to rest. They had seen no one, near or distant, for a long time, and the solitude remained unbroken. "'It's so still here, Rachel, and the way is so untrodden that I think we must be the first who have been here all the summer.' As Sissy said it, her eyes were attracted by another of those rotten fragments of fence upon the ground. She got up to look at it. And yet I don't know. This has not been broken very long. The wood is quite fresh where it gave way. Here are footsteps too. Oh, Rachel! She ran back and caught her round the neck. Rachel had already started up. What's the matter? I don't know. There's a hat lying in the grass. They went forward together. Rachel took it up, shaking from head to foot. She broke into a passion of tears and lamentations. Stephen Blackpool was written in his own hand on the inside. Oh, the poor lad, the poor lad. He's been made away with. He's lying murdered here. Is the, has the hat any blood upon it? Sissy faltered. They were afraid to look, but they did examine it and found no mark of violence inside or out. It had been lying there some days, for rain and dew had stained it, and the mark of its shape was on the grass where it had fallen. They looked fearfully about them, without moving, but could see nothing more. Rachel, Sissy whispered, 
i'll go on a little by myself she had unclasped her hand and was in the act of stepping forward when rachel caught her in both arms with a scream that resounded over the wide landscape before them at their very feet was the brink of a black ragged chasm hidden by the thick grass they sprang back and fell upon their knees each hiding her face upon the other's neck oh my good god he's down there down there at first this and her terrific screams were all that could be got from rachel by any tears by any prayers by any representations by any means it was impossible to hush her and it was deadly necessary to hold her or she would have flung herself down the shaft rachel dear rachel good rachel for the love of heaven not these dreadful cries think of stephen think of stephen think of stephen by an earnest repetition of this entreaty poured out in all the agony of such a moment cissy at last brought her to be silent and to look at her with a tearless face of stone rachel stephen may be living you wouldn't leave him at the bottom of this dreadful place a moment if you could bring help to him no 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 don't stir from here for his sake let me go and listen she shuddered to approach the pit but she crept towards it on her hands and knees and called to him as loud as she could call she listened but no sound replied she called again and listened still no answering sound she did this twenty thirty times she took a clod of earth from the broken ground where he had stumbled and threw it in she could not hear it fall the wide prospect so beautiful in its stillness but a few minutes ago almost carried despair to her brave heart as she rose and looked all around her seeing no help rachel we must lose not a moment we must go in different directions seeking aid you shall go by the way we have come and i will go forward by this path tell anyone you see and everyone what has happened think of stephen think of stephen she knew by rachel's face that she might trust her now after standing for a moment to see her running wringing her hands as she ran she turned and went upon her own search she stopped at the hedge to tie her shawl there as a guide to the place then threw her bonnet aside and ran as she had never run before run sissy run in heaven's name don't stop for breath run run quickening herself by carrying such entreaties in her thoughts she ran from field to field and lane to lane and place to place as she had never run before until she came to a shed by an engine-house where two men lay in the shade asleep on straw first to wake them and next to tell them all so wild and breathless as she was what had brought her there were difficulties but they no sooner understood her than their spirits were on fire like hers one of the men was in a drunken slumber but on his comrade shouting to him that a man had fallen down the old hell shaft he started out to a pool of dirty water put his head in it and came back sober with these two men she ran to another half a mile further and with that one to another while they ran elsewhere then a horse was found and she got another man to ride for life or death to the railroad and send a message to louisa which she wrote and gave him by this time a whole village was up and windlasses ropes poles buckets candles lanterns all things necessary were fast collecting and being brought into one place to be carried to the old hell shaft it seemed now hours and hours since she had left the lost man lying in the grave where he had been buried alive 
she could not bear to remain away from it any longer it was like deserting him and she hurried swiftly back accompanied by half a dozen labourers including the drunken man whom the news had sobered and who was the best man of all when they came to the old hell shaft they found it as lonely as she had left it the men called and listened as she had done and examined the edge of the chasm and settled how it had happened and then sat down to wait until the implements they wanted should come up every sound of insects in the air every stirring of the leaves every whisper among these men made sissy tremble but she thought it was a cry at the bottom of the pit but the wind blew idly over it and no sound arose to the surface and they sat upon the grass waiting and waiting after they had waited some time straggling people who had heard of the accident began to come up then the real help of implements began to arrive in the midst of this rachel returned and with her party there was a surgeon who brought some wine and medicines but the expectation among the people that the man would be found alive was very slight indeed there being now people enough present to impede the work the sobered man put himself at the head of the rest or was put there by the general consent and made a large ring round the old hell shaft and appointed men to keep it besides such volunteers as were accepted to work only sissy and rachel were at first permitted within this ring but later in the day when the message brought an express from coketown mr gradgrind and louisa and mr bounderby and the whelp were also there the sun was four hours lower than when sissy and rachel had first sat down upon the grass before a means of enabling two men to descend securely was rigged with poles and ropes difficulties had arisen in the construction of this machine simple as it was requisites had been found wanting and messages had had to go and return it was five o'clock in the afternoon of the bright autumnal sunday before a candle was sent down to try the air while three or four rough faces stood crowded close together attentively watching it the men at the windlass lowering as they were told the candle was brought up again feebly burning and then some water was cast in then the bucket was hooked on and the sobered man and another got in with lights giving the word lure away as the rope went out tight and strained and the windlass creaked there was not a breath among the one or two hundred men and women looking on that came as it was wont to come the signal was given and the windlass stopped with abundant rope to spare apparently so long an interval ensued with the men at the windlass standing idle that some women shrieked that another accident had happened but the surgeon who held the watch declared five minutes not to have elapsed yet and sternly admonished them to keep silence he had not well done speaking when the windlass was reversed and worked again practised eyes knew that it did not go as heavily as it would if both workmen had been coming up and that only one was returning the rope came in tight and strained and ring after ring was coiled upon the barrel of the windlass and all eyes were fastened on the pit the sobered man was brought up and leaped out briskly on the grass there was a universal cry of alive or dead and then a deep profound hush when he said alive a great shout arose and many eyes had tears in them but he's hurt very bad he added as soon as he could make himself heard again where's doctor he's hurt so very bad sir that we don't know how to get him up they all consulted together and looked anxiously at the surgeon 
as he asked some questions and shook his head on receiving the replies. The sun was setting now, and the red light in the evening sky touched every face there and caused it to be distinctly seen in all its rapt suspense. The consultation ended in the men returning to the windlass and the pitman going down again, carrying the wine and some other small matters with him. Then the other man came up. In the meantime, under the surgeon's directions, some men brought a hurdle on which others made a thick bed of spare clothes covered with loose straw, while he himself contrived some bandages and slings from shawls and handkerchiefs. As these were made, they were hung upon an arm of the pitman who had last come up, with instructions how to use them, and as he stood shown by the light he carried, leaning his powerful loose hand upon one of the poles, and sometimes glancing down the pit, and sometimes glancing round upon the people, he was not the least conspicuous figure in the scene. It was dark now, and torches were kindled. It appeared from the little this man said to those about him, which was quickly repeated all over the circle, that the lost man had fallen upon a mass of crumbled rubbish with which the pit was half choked up, and that his fall had been further broken by some jagged earth at the side. He lay upon his back, with one arm doubled under him, and according to his own belief, had hardly stirred since he fell, except that he had moved his free hand to a side pocket, in which he remembered to have some bread and meat, of which he had swallowed crumbs, and had likewise scooped up a little water in it now and then. He had come straight away from his work on being written to, and had walked the whole journey, and was on his way to Mr. Bounderby's country house after dark when he fell. He was crossing that dangerous country at such a dangerous time, because he was innocent of what was laid to his charge, and couldn't rest from coming the nearest way to deliver himself up. The old hell-shaft, the pitman said, with a curse upon it, was worthy of its bad name to the last. For though Stephen could speak now, he believed it would soon be found to have mangled the life out of him. When all was ready, this man, still taking his last hurried charges from his comrades, and the surgeon, after the windlass had begun to lower him, disappeared into the pit. The rope went out as before, the signal was made as before, and the windlass stopped. No man removed his hand from it now. Everyone waited with his grasp set, and his body bent down to the work, ready to reverse and wind in. At length the signal was given, and all the ring leaned forward, for now the rope came in, tightened and strained to its utmost as it appeared, and the men turned heavily, and the windlass complained. It was scarcely endurable to look at the rope and think of its giving way, but ring after ring was coiled upon the barrel of the windlass safely, and the connecting chains appeared. And finally, the bucket with the two men holding on at the sides, a sight to make the head swim and oppress the heart, and tenderly supporting between them, slung and tied within, the figure of a poor, crushed human creature. A low murmur of pity went round the throng, and the women wept aloud as this form, almost without form, was moved very slowly from its iron deliverance and laid upon the bed of straw. At first, none but the surgeon went close to it. He did what he could in its adjustment on the couch, but the best that he could do was to cover it. That gently done, he called to him Rachel and Sissy, and at that time the pale, worn, patient face was seen looking up at the sky, with the broken right hand laying bare on the outside of the covering garments, 
as if waiting to be taken by another hand. They gave him drink, moistened his face with water, and administered some drops of cordial and wine. Though he lay quite motionless, looking up at the sky, he smiled and said, Rachel. She stooped down on the grass at his side, and bent over him until her eyes were between his and the sky, for he could not so much as turn them to look at her. Rachel, my dear. She took his hand, he smiled again, and said, Don't let it go. That's in great pain, my own dear Stephen. I have been, but not now. I have been dreadful, and dree, and long, me dear. But tis o'er now. Ah, Rachel, oh, muddle, for a first to last, a muddle. The spectre of his old look seemed to pass as he said the word. I fell into th' pit, me dear, as of cost, with knowledge o' old folk now living, hundreds and hundreds of men's lives, fathers, sons, brothers, dear to thousands and thousands, and keeping them for a want and hunger. I have fell into a pit that a been with fire-damp crueller than battle. I have read on in th' public petition, as only one may read, for th' men that works in pits, in which they are praying and praying the law-makers, for Christ's sake, not to let their work be murder to em, but to spare em for th' wives and children that they loves, as well as gentlefolk loves theirs. When it were in work, it killed without need. When tis let alone, it kills without need. See how we die, and no need, one way and another, in a muddle, every day. He faintly said it, without any anger against anyone, merely as the truth. Thy little sister, Rachel, thou hast not forgot her. Thou art not like to forget her now, and me so nigher. Thou knowest, poor, patient, suffering dear, how thou didst work for her, seating all day long in a little chair at the window, and she died, young and misshapen, all longer sickly air as had no need to be, and all longer walking people's miserable homes. A muddle, or a muddle. Louisa approached him, but he could not see her, lying with his face turned up to the night sky. If all things that touches us, my dear, was not so muddled, I shouldn't have had need to come here. If it was not in a muddle among ourselves, I shouldn't have been by my own fellow weavers and working brothers, so mistook. If Mr. Bounderby had ever knowed me right, if he'd ever knowed me at all, he wouldn't have took offence with me, he wouldn't have suspected me. Well, look up yonder, Rachel, look above. Following his eyes, she saw that he was gazing at a star. It has shined upon me, he said reverently, in my pain and trouble down below. It has shined into my mind. I am looking at it, and thout of thee, Rachel, till the muddle in my mind have cleared away, above and a bit, I hope. If some have been wanting in understanding me better, I too have been wanting in understanding them better. When I got thy letter, I easily believing that what the young lady sen and done to me, and what her brother sen and done to me, was one, and that there were a wicked plot betwixt them. When I fell, I were in anger with her, and hurrying on to be as unjust to her as others was to me. But in our judgments, like as in our doings, 
we mun bear and forbear in my pain and trouble looking up yonder we it shining on me i ha' seen more clear and i made it my dying prayer that all the world may only come together more and get a better understanding o one another than when i were in my own weak self louisa hearing what he said bent over him on the opposite side to rachel so that he could see her you heard he said after a few moments silence i have not forgot your lady yes stephen i have heard you and your prayer is mine you have a favour will you tack a message to him he's here said louisa with dread shall i bring him to you if you please louisa returned with her father standing hand in hand they both looked down upon the solemn countenance sir he will clear me and that may name good we all met this i leave to you mr gradgrind was troubled and asked how sir was the reply your son will tell you how ask him i'm at no charges i leave none ahint me not a single word i have seen and spoken with your son one night i ask no more of you than that you clear me and i trust to you to do it the bearers being now ready to carry him away and the surgeon being anxious for his removal those who had torches or lanterns prepared to go in front of the litter before it was raised and while they were arranging how to go he said to rachel looking upward at the star often as i come to miss elm and found it shining on me down there in my trouble i thought it were the star as guided to our saviour's home i almost think it be the very star they lifted him up and he was overjoyed to find that they were about to take him in the direction whither the star seemed to him to lead rachel beloved lass don't let go my hand we may walk together to-night my dear i will hold thy hand and keep beside thee stephen all the way bless thee will somebody be pleased to cover me face they carried him very gently along the fields and down the lanes and over the wide landscape rachel always holding the hand in hers very few whispers broke the mournful silence it was soon a funeral procession the star had shown him where to find the god of the poor and through humility and sorrow and forgiveness he had gone to his redeemer's rest end of part 19「who held her father's arms, but in a retired place by themselves. When Mr. Gradgrind was summoned to the couch, Sissy, attentive to all that happened, slipped behind that wicked shadow, a sight in the horror of his face, if there had been eyes there for any sight but one, and whispered in his ear. Without turning his head, he conferred with her a few moments, and vanished. 
thus the whelp had gone out of the circle before the people moved when the father reached home he sent a message to mr bounderby's desiring his son to come to him directly the reply was that mr bounderby having missed him in the crowd and seen nothing of him since had supposed him to be at stone lodge i believe father said louisa he will not come back to town to-night mr gradgrind turned away and said no more in the morning he went down to the bank himself as soon as it was opened and seeing his son's place empty he had not the courage to look in at first went back along the street to meet mr bounderby on his way there to whom he said that for reasons he would soon explain but entreated not then to be asked for he had found it necessary to employ his son at a distance for a little while also that he was charged with the duty of vindicating stephen blackpool's memory and declaring the thief mr bounderby quite confounded stood stock-still in the street after his father-in-law had left him swelling like an immense soap-bubble without its beauty mr gradgrind went home locked himself in his room and kept it all that day when cissy and louisa tapped at his door he said without opening it not now my dears in the evening on their return in the evening he said i'm not able yet tomorrow he ate nothing all day and had no candle after dark and they heard him walking to and fro late at night but in the morning he appeared at breakfast at the usual hour and took his usual place at the table aged and bent he looked and quite bowed down and yet he looked a wiser man and a better man than in the days when in this life he wanted nothing but facts before he left the room he appointed a time for them to come to him and so with his grey head drooping went away dear father said louisa when they kept their appointment you will have three young children left they will be different i will be different yet with heaven's help she gave her hand to cissy as if she meant with her help too your wretched brother said mr gradgrind do you think he had planned this robbery when he went with you to the lodging i know he had wanted money very much and had spent a great deal the poor man being about to leave the town it came into his evil brain to cast suspicion on him i think it must have flashed upon him while he sat there father for i asked him to go there with me the visit did not originate with him he had some conversation with the poor man did he take him aside he took him out of the room i asked him afterwards why he had done so and he made a plausible excuse but since last night father and when i remember the circumstances by its light i am afraid i can imagine too truly what passed between them let me know said her father if your thoughts present your guilty brother in the same dark view as mine i fear father hesitated louisa that he must have made some representation to stephen blackpool perhaps in my name perhaps in his own which induced him to do in good faith and honesty what he had never done before and to wait about the bank those two or three nights before he left the town too plain returned the father too plain he shaded his face and remained silent for some moments recovering himself he said and now how is he to be found how is he to be saved from justice in the few hours that i can possibly allow to elapse before i publish the truth how is he to be found by us and only by us ten thousand pounds could not effect it cissy has effected it father he raised his eyes to where she stood 
like a good fairy in his house and said in a tone of softened gratitude and grateful kindness it is always you my child we had our fears cissy explained glancing at louisa before yesterday and when i saw you brought to the side of the litter last night and heard what passed being close to rachel all the time i went to him when no one saw and said to him don't look at me see where your father is escape at once for his sake and your own he was in a tremble before i whispered to him and he started and trembled more then and said where can i go i have very little money and i don't know who will hide me i thought of father's old circus i've not forgotten where mr sleary goes at this time of year and i read of him in a paper only the other day i told him to hurry there and tell his name and ask mr sleary to hide him till i came i'll get to him before the morning he said and i saw him shrink away among the people thank heaven exclaimed his father he may be got abroad yet it was the more hopeful as the town to which cissy had directed him was within three hours journey of liverpool whence he could be swiftly dispatched to any part of the world but caution being necessary in communicating with him for there was a great danger every moment of his being suspected now and nobody could be sure at heart but that mr bounderby himself in a bullying vein of public zeal might play a roman part it was consented that cissy and louisa should repair to the place in question by a circuitous course alone and that the unhappy father setting forth in an opposite direction should get round to the same bourne by another and wider route it was further agreed that he should not present himself to mr sleary lest his intentions should be mistrusted or the intelligence of his arrival should cause his son to take flight anew but that the communication should be left to cissy and louisa to open and that they should inform the cause of so much misery and disgrace of his father's being at hand and of the purpose for which they had come when these arrangements had been well considered and were fully understood by all three it was time to begin to carry them into execution early in the afternoon mr gradgrind walked direct from his own house into the country to be taken up on the line by which he was to travel and at night the remaining two set forth upon their different course encouraged by not seeing any face they knew the two travelled all night except when they were left for odd numbers of minutes at branch places up illimitable flights of steps or down wells which was the only variety of those branches and early in the morning were turned out on a swamp a mile or two from the town they sought from this dismal spot they were rescued by a savage old postilion who happened to be up early kicking a horse into a fly and so were smuggled into the town by all the back lanes where the pigs lived which although not a magnificent or even savoury approach was as is usual in such cases the legitimate highway the first thing they saw on entering the town was the skeleton of Sleary's Circus. The company had departed for another town more than twenty miles off, and had opened there last night. The connection between the two places was by a hilly turnpike road, and the travelling on that road was very slow. Though they took but a hasty breakfast and no rest, which it would have been in vain to seek under such anxious circumstances, it was noon before they began to find the bills of Sleary's horse-riding, on barns and walls and one o'clock when they stopped in the market-place a grand morning performance by the riders commencing at that very hour was in course of announcement by the bellman as they set their feet upon the stones of the street 
Sissy recommended that, to avoid making inquiries and attracting attention in the town, they should present themselves to pay at the door. If Mr. Sleary were taking the money, he would be sure to know her and would proceed with discretion. If he were not, he would be sure to see them inside, and knowing what he had done with the fugitive, would proceed with discretion still. Therefore they repaired with fluttering hearts to the well-remembered booth. The flag with the inscription, Sleary's Horse Riding, was there, and the Gothic niche was there, but Mr. Sleary was not there. Master Kidderminster, grown too maturely turfy to be received by the wildest credulity as Cupid any more, had yielded to the invincible force of circumstances and his beard, and in the capacity of a man who made himself generally useful, presided on this occasion over the exchequer, having also a drum in reserve, on which to expend his leisure moments and superfluous forces. In the extreme sharpness of his lookout for base coin, Mr. Kidderminster, as at present situated, never saw anything but money, so Sissy passed him unrecognised, and they went in. The Emperor of Japan, on a steady old white horse, stenciled with black spots, was twirling five wash-hand basins at once, as is the favourite recreation of that monarch to do. Sissy, though well acquainted with his royal line, had no personal knowledge of the present emperor, and his reign was peaceful. Miss Josephine Sleary, in her celebrated graceful equestrian Tyrolean flower act, was then announced by a new clown, who humorously said, cauliflower act and mr sleary appeared leading her in mr sleary had only made one cut at the clown with his long whiplash and the clown had only said if you do it again i'll throw the horse at you when sissy was recognized both by father and daughter but they got through the act with great self-possession and mr sleary saving for the first instant conveyed no more expression into his locomotive eye than into his fixed one the performance seemed a little long to Sissy and Louisa, particularly when it stopped to afford the clown an opportunity of telling Mr. Sleary, who said, Indeed, sir, to all his observations in the calmest way, and with his eye on the house, about two legs sitting on three legs, looking at one leg, when in came four legs, and laid hold of one leg, and got up two legs, caught hold of three legs, and threw them at four legs, who ran away with one leg. For, although an ingenious allegory relating to a butcher, a three-legged stool, a dog, and a leg of mutton, this narrative consumed time, and they were in great suspense. At last, however, little fair-haired Josephine made her curtsy amid great applause, and the clown, left alone in the ring, had just warmed himself and said, Now, I'll have a turn, when Sissy was touched on the shoulder and beckoned out. She took Louisa with her, and they were received by Mr. Sleary in a very little private apartment with canvas sides, a grass floor, and a wooden ceiling all aslant, on which the box company stamped their approbation as if they were coming through. Thethelia, said Mr. Sleary, who had brandy and water at hand, it doth me good to thee ye. You hath always a favourite with uth, and you've done uth credit since the old times, I'm sure. You must see our people, my dear, afore we speak of business, and they'll break their hearts, especially the women. If Josephine has been and got married to E. W. B. Childers, and she has got a boy, and though he's only three years old, he sticks to any pony he can bring against him. 
if name the little wondereth calleth thick equitation and if you don't hear of that boy at athleth you'll hear of him at parith and you recollect kidderminster that were thought to be rather sweet upon yourself well he's married too married a widder old enough to be his mother thee was tight roped he was and now thee's nothing on account of fat they've got two children though he's strong in fairy business and the nursery dodge if you were to see our children in the wood with their father and mother both a dying on a horse their uncle a receiving of em hath his wards upon a horse them felt both a going a black a blackberrying on a horse and the robins a coming in to cover em with leaves upon a horse you say it was the completest thing if you'd ever set your eyes on and you remember emma gordon my dear as was almost a mother to you of course you do i needn't ask well emma feel off the husband he was throwed a heavy backfall of a elephant in, in a thought of a pagoda thing of the sultan of the indies and he never got the better of it and they married a second time married a cheesemonger who fell in love with her from the front and he's a overseer and making a fortune these various changes mr sleary very short of breath now related with great heartiness and with a wonderful kind of innocence considering what a bleary and brandy and water old veteran he was afterwards he brought in josephine and e w b childers rather deeply lined in the jaws by daylight and the little wonder of scholastic equitation and in a word all the company amazing creatures they were in louisa's eyes so white and pink of complexion so scant of dress and so demonstrative of leg but it was very agreeable to see them crowding about sissy and very natural in sissy to be unable to refrain from tears there <sighs> now thethelia hath kissed all the children and hugged all the women and thaken hands all round with all the men clear every one of you and ring in the band for the second part said sleary as soon as they were gone he continued in a low tone now thethelia I don't have to know any secret, but I've the bore they may consider this to be Miss Squire. This is his sister, yes. And t'other one's daughter, that's what I mean. Hope I fear you well, Miss, and I hope Squire's well. My father will be here soon, said Louisa, anxious to bring him to the point. Is my brother safe? Safe and sound, he replied. I want you just to take a peep at the ring, Miss through here the failure you know the dodgeth find a spile for yourself they each looked through a chink in the boards that's jack the giant killer piece of comic infant business said sleary there's a property half you see for jack to hide in there's me clown with a saucepan lid and a spit for jack fervent there's little jack himself in a splendid suit of armour there's two comic black servants twice as big as the house to stand by it and to bring it in and clear it and the giant a very expensive basket one he ain't on yet now do you see them all yes they both said look at him again said sleary look at him well you see them all very good now miss 
he put a form for them to sit on. I have my opinionth, and the squire your father hath hith. I don't want to know what your brotherth been up to. It's better for me not to know. All I thayeth, the squireth stood by Cecilia, and I'll stand by squire. Your brother is one of them black fervents. Louisa uttered an exclamation, partly of distress, partly of satisfaction. In the fact, said Sleary, and even knowing it, you couldn't put your finger on him. Let the squire come. I'll keep your brother here after the performance. I can't undreth him, nor yet wath his paint off. Let the squire come here after the performance, or come here yourself after the performance, and you'll find your brother and have the whole place to talk to him in. Never mind the looks of him, as long as he's well hid. Louisa, with many thanks, and with a lightened load, detained Mr. Sleary no longer then. She left her love for her brother, with her eyes full of tears, and she and Sissy went away until later in the afternoon. Mr. Gradgrind arrived within an hour afterwards. He too had encountered no one whom he knew, and was now sanguine, with Sleary's assistance, of getting his disgraced son to Liverpool in the night. As neither of the three could be his companion, without almost identifying him, under any disguise, he prepared a letter to a correspondent whom he could trust, beseeching him to ship the bearer off, at any cost, to North or South America, or any distant part of the world, to which he could be the most speedily and privately dispatched. This done, they walked about, waiting for the circus to be quite vacated, not only by the audience, but by the company and by the horses. After watching it a long time, they saw Mr. Sleary bring out a chair and sit down by the side door, smoking, as if that were his signal that they might approach. "'Your fervent, squire,' was his cautious salutation as they passed in. "'If you want me, you'll find me here. You mustn't mind your thun having a comic livery on.' They all three went in, and Mr. Gradgrind sat down, forlorn, on the clown's performing chair in the middle of the ring. On one of the back benches, remote in the subdued light and the strangeness of the place, sat the villainous whelp, sulky to the last, whom he had the misery to call his own. In a preposterous coat, like a beadle's, with cuffs and flaps exaggerated to an unspeakable extent, in an immense waistcoat, knee-breeches, buckled shoes, and a mad cocked hat, with nothing fitting him, and everything of coarse material, moth-eaten and full of holes, with seams in his black face where fear and heat had started through the greasy composition daubed all over it. Anything so grimly, detestably, ridiculously shameful as the whelp in his comic livery, Mr. Gradgrind never could by any other means have believed in, weighable and measurable fact though it was. And one of his model children had come to this. At first the whelp would not draw any nearer, but persisted in remaining up there by himself, yielding at length, if any concession so sullenly made can be called yielding, to the entreaties of Sissy. For Louisa he disowned altogether. He came down, bench by bench, until he stood in the sawdust on the verge of the circle, as far as possible within its limits, from where his father sat. "'How is this done?' asked the father. "'How is what done?' moodily answered the son. "'This robbery,' said the father, "'raising his voice upon the word. "'I forced the safe myself overnight, "'and shut it up ajar before I went away. 
i had the key that was found made long before i dropped it that morning that it might be supposed to have been used i didn't take the money all at once i pretended to put my balance away every night but i didn't now you know all about it if a thunderbolt had fallen on me said the father it would have shocked me less than this i don't see why grumbled the son so many people are employed in situations of trust so many people out of so many will be dishonest i have heard you talk a hundred times of its being a law how can i help laws you've comforted others with such things father comfort yourself the father buried his face in his hands and the son stood in his disgraceful grotesqueness biting straw his hands with the black partly worn away inside looking like the hands of a monkey the evening was fast closing in and from time to time he turned the whites of his eyes restlessly and impatiently towards his father they were the only parts of his face that showed any life or expression the pigment upon it was so thick you must be got to liverpool and sent abroad i suppose i must i can't be more miserable anywhere whimpered the whelp than i have been here ever since i can remember that's one thing mr gradgrind went to the door and returned with sleary to whom he submitted the question how to get this deplorable object away why i've been thinking of it squire there's not much time to lose for you must say yes or no it's over twenty miles to the rail there's a coach in half an hour that goes to the rail purpose to cast the mail train that train will take him right to liverpool but look at him groaned mr gradgrind will any coach i don't mean that you will go in the comic livery said sleary say the word and i'll make a jothkin of him out of the wardrobe in five minutes i don't understand said mr gradgrind a jothkin a carter make up your mind quick squire there'll be beer to feth i've never met with nothing but beer as they'll ever clean a comic blackamoor mr gradgrind rapidly assented mr sleary rapidly turned out from a box a smock frock a felt hat and other essentials the whelp rapidly changed clothes behind a screen of baize mr sleary rapidly brought beer and washed him white again now said sleary come along to th goth and jump up behind i'll go with you there and they'll forbore you one of my people say farewell to your family and tharp the word with which he delicately retired here's your letter said mr gradgrind all necessary means will be provided for you atone by repentance and better conduct for the shocking action you've committed and the dreadful consequences to which it has led give me a hand my poor boy and may god forgive you as i do the culprit was moved to a few abject tears by these words and their pathetic tone but when louisa opened her arms he repulsed her afresh not you i don't want to have anything to say to you oh tom tom do we end so after all my love after all your love he returned obdurately pretty love leaving old bounderby to himself and packing my best friend mr harthouse off and going home just when i was in the greatest danger pretty love that coming out with every word about our having gone to that place when you saw the net was gathering round me pretty love that you've regularly given me up you never cared for me that's the word said sleary at the door 
they all confusedly went out louisa crying to him that she forgave him and loved him still and that he would one day be sorry to have left her so and glad to think of these her last words far away when some one ran against them mr gradgrind and sissy who were both before him while his sister yet clung to his shoulder stopped and recoiled for there was bitzer out of breath his thin lips parted his thin nostrils distended his white eyelashes quivering his colourless face more colourless than ever as if he ran himself into a white heat when other people ran themselves into a glow there he stood panting and heaving as if he had never stopped since the night now long ago when he had run them down before i'm sorry to interfere with your plans said bitzer shaking his head but i can't allow myself to be done by horse riders i must have mr tom he mustn't be got away by horse riders here he is in a smock frock and i must have him by the collar too it seemed for so he took possession of him chapter thirty six they went back into the booth sleary shutting the door to keep intruders out bitzer still holding the paralysed culprit by the collar stood in the ring blinking at his old patron through the darkness of the twilight bitzer said mr gradgrind broken down and miserably submissive to him have you a heart the circulation sir returned bitzer smiling at the oddity of the question couldn't be carried on without one no man sir acquainted with the facts established by harvey relating to the circulation of the blood can doubt that i have a heart is it accessible cried mr gradgrind to any compassionate influence it is accessible to reason sir returned the excellent young man and to nothing else they stood looking at each other mr gradgrind's face as white as the pursuers what motive even what motive in reason can you have for preventing the escape of this wretched youth said mr gradgrind and crushing his miserable father see his sister here pity us sir returned bitzer in a very business-like and logical manner since you ask me what motive i have in reason for taking young mr tom back to coketown it's only reasonable to let you know i've suspected young mr tom of this bank robbery from the first i had had my eye upon him before that time for i knew his ways i've kept my observations to myself but i have made them and i've got ample proofs against him now besides his running away and besides his own confession which i was just in time to overhear i had the pleasure of watching your house yesterday morning and following you here i'm going to take young mr tom back to coketown in order to deliver him over to mr bounderby sir i've no doubt whatever that mr bounderby will then promote me to young mr tom's situation and i wish to have his situation sir for it will be a rise to me and will do me good if this is solely a question of self-interest with you mr gradgrind began i beg your pardon for interrupting you sir returned bitzer but i'm sure you know that the whole social system is a question of self-interest what you must always appeal to is a person's self-interest it's your only hold we are so constituted i was brought up in that catechism when i was very young sir as you are aware what sum of money said mr gradgrind will you set against your expected promotion thank you sir returned bitzer for hinting at the proposal but i will not set any sum against it knowing that your clear head would propose that alternative 
i've gone over the calculations in my mind and i find that to compound a felony even on very high terms indeed would not be as safe and good for me as my improved prospects in the bank bitzer said mr gradgrind stretching out his hands as though he would have said see how miserable i am bitzer i have but one chance left to soften you you were many years at my school if in remembrance of the pains bestowed upon you there you can persuade yourself in any degree to disregard your present interest and release my son i entreat and pray you to give him the benefit of that remembrance i really wonder sir rejoined the old pupil in an argumentative manner to find you taking a position so untenable my schooling was paid for it was a bargain and when i came away the bargain ended it was a fundamental principle of the gradgrind philosophy that everything was to be paid for nobody was ever on any account to give anybody anything or render anybody help without purchase gratitude was to be abolished and the virtues springing from it were not to be every inch of the whole existence of mankind from birth to death was to be a bargain across a counter and if we didn't get to heaven that way it was not a politico-economical place and we had no business there i don't deny added bitzer that my schooling was cheap but that comes right sir i was made in the cheapest market and have to dispose of myself in the dearest he was a little troubled here by louisa and sissy crying pray don't do that said he it's of no use doing that it only worries you seem to think that i have some animosity against young mr tom whereas i have none at all i am only going on the reasonable grounds i have mentioned to take him back to coketown if he was to resist i should set up the cry of stop thief but he won't resist you may depend upon it mr sleary who with his mouth open and his rolling eye as immovably jammed in his head as his fixed one had listened to these doctrines with profound attention here stepped forward squire you know perfectly well and your daughter north perfectly well better than you because i fed it to her that i didn't know what your son had done and that i didn't want to know i fed it with better not though i only thought then it was some skylarking however this young man having made it known to be a robbery of a bank why that's a serious thing must do serious a thing for me to compound as this young man hath very properly called it consequently squire you mustn't quarrel with me if i take this young man's side and say he's right and there's no help for it but i tell you what i'll do squire i'll drive your son and this young man over to thrail and prevent exposure here i can't consent to do more but i'll do that fresh lamentations from louisa and deeper affliction on mr gradgrind's part followed this desertion of them by their last friend but sissy glanced at him with great attention nor did she in her own breast misunderstand him as they were all going out again he favoured her with one slight roll of his movable eye desiring her to linger behind as he locked the door he said excitedly the squire stood by you Cecilia, and i'll stand by the squire more than that this is a precious rascal and belongs to that blustering cove that my people nearly piffed out a window it'll be a dark night i've got a horse that'll do anything but speak i've got a pony that'll go fifteen mile an hour with childeth driving of him 
I've got a dog that'll keep a man to one place four and twenty hours. Get a word with young squire. Tell him, when he thieth our oath begin to dance, not to be afraid of being spilt, but to look out for a pony gig coming up. Tell him, when he thieth that gig close by, to jump down, and it'll take him off at a rattling pace. If my dog left this young man stir a peg on foot, I give him leave to go. And if my oath ever stirs from that spot where he begins the dancing till th morning, I don't know him. Tharp the word. The word was so sharp that in ten minutes Mr. Childers, sauntering about the market-place in a pair of slippers, had his cue, and Mr. Sleary's equipage was ready. It was a fine sight to behold the learned dog barking round it, and Mr. Sleary instructing him with his one practicable eye that Bitzer was the object of his particular attentions. Soon after dark they all three got in and started. The learned dog, a formidable creature, already pinning Bitzer with his eye and sticking close to the wheel on his side, that he might be ready for him in the event of his showing the slightest disposition to alight. The other three sat up at the inn all night in great suspense. At eight o'clock in the morning, Mr. Sleary and the dog reappeared, both in high spirits. "'All right, squire,' said Mr. Sleary. "'Your son may be aboard a thit by this time. Childeth took him off an hour and a half after we left here last night. The horse danced the polka till he was dead beat. He would have wolfed if he hadn't been in harness. And then I gave him the word, and he went to sleep comfortable.' When that precious young rascal said he'd go forward afoot, the dog hung on to his neck handkerchief with all four legs in the air and pulled him down and rolled him over. Though so he come back into the drag, and there he sat till I turned the horse's head at half past six this morning. Mr. Gradgrind overwhelmed him with thanks, of course, and hinted as delicately as he could at a handsome remuneration in money. I don't want money, myself, squire. But Childeth is a family man, and if you were to like to offer him a five-pound note, it mightn't be unacceptable. Likewise, if you were to stand a collar for the dog, and a set of bells for the horse, I should be very glad to take em. Brandy and water I always take. He had already called for a glass, and now called for another. If you wouldn't think it going too far, squire, to make a little spread for the company, at about three and thick for head, not reckoning Luth, it were make em happy. All these little tokens of his gratitude, Mr. Gradgrind very willingly undertook to render, though he thought them far too slight, he said, for such a service. Very well, squire. Then, if you'll only give a horse-riding, a bespeak, whenever you can, you'll more than balance the account. Now, squire, if your daughter will excuse me, I thought like one parting word with you. Louisa and Sissy withdrew into an adjoining room. Mr. Sleary, stirring and drinking his brandy and water as he stood, went on. Squire, you don't need to be told that dogs is wonderful animals. Their instinct, said Mr. Gradgrind, is surprising. Whatever you call it, and I'm blessed if I know what to call it, said Sleary. It is a funny thing. The way in which a dog will find you, the distance he'll come. His scent, said Mr. Gradgrind, being so fine. I'm blessed if I know what to call it, repeated Sleary, shaking his head. But I've had dogs find me, squire, 
in a way that made me think whether that dog hadn't gone to another dog, and said, You know what happened to Noah Burthen of the name of Thleary, dear? Burthen of the name of Thleary in the horse-riding way. Stout man, game eye. And whether that dog mightn't have said, Well, I can't say I know him myself, but I know a dog that I think would be likely to be acquainted with him. And whether that dog mightn't have thought it over and said, Thleary, Thleary, oh yes, to be sure. A friend of mine mentioned him to me at one time. I can get you with the dress directly. In consequence of my being afore the public, and going about for much, you see, there must be a number of dogs acquainted with me, squire, that I don't know. Mr. Gradgrind seemed to be quite confounded by this speculation. Anyway, said Sleary, after putting his lips to his brandy and water, it's fourteen months ago, Thwire, since we were at Chester. We was getting up our children in the wood one morning, when there cometh into our ring by the stage door a dog. He had travelled a long way. He was in very bad condition. He was lame and pretty well blind. He went round to our children, one after another, as if he were seeking for a child he knowed. And then he come to me, and throwed himself up behind, and stood on his two forelegs, weak as he was. And then he wagged his tail and died. Squire, that dog with merry legs. Sissy's father's dog. Thethelia's father's old dog. Now, squire, I can take me oath from my knowledge of that dog, that that man was dead and buried, afore that dog came back to me. Jorthfine and Childerth and me talked it over a long time, whether I thought right or not. But we agreed. No, there's nothing comfortable to tell. Why unsettle her mind and make her unhappy? So, whether her father basely deserted her, or whether he broke his own heart alone, rather than pull her down along with him, never will be known now, squire. Till, no, not till we know how the dogs findeth out. She keeps the bottle that he sent her for to this hour, and she will believe in his affection to the last moment of her life, said Mr. Gradgrind. It seems to prevent two things to a person, don't it, squire? said Mr. Sleary, musing as he looked down into the depths of his brandy and water. One, that there is a love in the world. Not all self-interest, after all, but something very different. T'other, that he hath a way of his own, of calculating, or not calculating, with somehow or other, if at least a hard to give a name to, of the wave of the dog-fifth. Mr. Gradgrind looked out of window, and made no reply. Mr. Sleary emptied his glass, and recalled the ladies. The Thelia, my dear, kiss me, and good-bye. Miss Guire, the fee you treating of her like a fifter, and a fifter that you trust and honour with all your heart and more, is a very pretty sight to me. I hope your brother may live to be better deserving of you, and a greater comfort to you. Squire, take hands, first and last. Don't be cross with us poor vagabonds. People must be amused. They can't be always for learning, nor yet they can't be always for working. They aren't made for it. You must have a squire. Do the wise thing, and the kind thing too, and make the best of us, not the worst. And I never thought before, said Mr. Sleary, putting his head in at the door again to say it, 
that I with Thor Muth of a cackler. Chapter 37 It is a dangerous thing to see anything in the sphere of a vain blusterer before the vain blusterer sees it himself. Mr. Bounderby felt that Mrs. Sparsit had audaciously anticipated him and presumed to be wiser than he. Inappeasably indignant with her for her triumphant discovery of Mrs. Pegler, he turned this presumption on the part of a woman in her dependent position over and over in his mind until it accumulated with turning like a great snowball. At last he made the discovery that to discharge this highly connected female, to have it in his power to say, She was a woman of family and wanted to stick to me, but I wouldn't have it and got rid of her would be to get the utmost possible amount of crowning glory out of the connection, and at the same time to punish Mrs. Sparsit according to her deserts. Filled fuller than ever with this great idea, Mr. Bounderby came in to lunch and sat himself down in the dining-room of former days where his portrait was. Mrs. Sparsit sat by the fire with her foot in her cotton stirrup, little thinking whither she was posting. Since the Pegler affair, this gentlewoman had covered her pity for Mr. Bounderby with a veil of quiet melancholy and contrition. In virtue thereof, it had become her habit to assume a woeful look, which woeful look she now bestowed upon her patron. "'What's the matter now, ma'am?' said Mr. Bounderby, in a very short, rough way. "'Pray, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsit, "'do not bite my nose off.' "'Bite your nose off, ma'am,' repeated Mr. Bounderby, your nose, meaning, as Mrs. Sparsit conceived, that it was too developed a nose for the purpose, after which offensive implication he cut himself a crust of bread and threw the knife down with a noise. Mrs. Sparsit took her foot out of the stirrup and said, Mr. Bounderby, sir. Well, ma'am, retorted Mr. Bounderby, what are you staring at? May I ask, sir, said Mrs. Sparsit, have you been ruffled this morning? "'Yes, ma'am.' "'May I inquire, sir,' pursued the injured woman, "'whether I am the unfortunate cause of your having lost your temper?' "'Now, I'll tell you what, ma'am,' said Bounderby. "'I'm not come here to be bullied. "'A female may be highly connected, "'but she can't be permitted to bother and badger a man in my position, "'and I am not going to put up with it.' Mr. Bounderby felt it necessary to get on, foreseeing that if he allowed of details, he would be beaten. Mrs. Sparsit first elevated, then knitted her Coriolanian eyebrows, gathered up her work into its proper basket, and rose. Sir, said she majestically, it is apparent to me that I am in your way at present. I will retire to my own apartment. Allow me to open the door, ma'am. Thank you, sir. I can do it for myself. "'You'd better allow me, ma'am,' said Bounderby, passing her and getting his hand upon the lock, "'because I can take the opportunity of saying a word to you before you go. "'Busy Sparsit, ma'am, I rather think you're cramped here, do you know? "'It appears to me that under my humble roof "'there's hardly opening enough for a lady of your genius in other people's affairs.' Mrs. Sparsit gave him a look of the darkest scorn and said, with great politeness. Really, sir? I have been thinking it over, you see, since the late affairs have happened, ma'am, 
said Bounderby. "'And it appears to my poor judgment.' "'Oh, pray, sir,' Mrs. Sparsit interposed, with sprightly cheerfulness, "'don't disparage your judgment. "'Everybody knows how unerring Mr. Bounderby's judgment is. "'Everybody has had proofs of it. "'It must be the theme of general conversation. "'Disparage anything in yourself but your judgment, sir,' said Mrs. Sparsit, laughing. "'Mr. Bounderby, very red and uncomfortable, resumed. "'It appears to me, ma'am, I say, "'there's a different sort of establishment altogether "'would bring out a lady of your powers. "'Such an establishment as your relation, Lady Scadgers is now. "'Don't you think you might find some affairs there, ma'am, "'to interfere with?' "'It never occurred to me before, sir,' returned Mrs. Sparsit. "'But now you mention it, I should think it's highly probable.' "'Then suppose you try, ma'am,' said Bounderby laying an envelope with a cheque in it in her little basket you can take your own time for going ma'am but perhaps in the meanwhile it will be more agreeable to a lady of your powers of mind to eat her meals by herself and not to be intruded upon i really ought to apologise to you being only josiah bounderby of corktown for having stood in your light so long pray don't name it sir returned mrs sparsit if that portrait could speak sir but it has the advantage over the original of not possessing the power of committing itself and disgusting others it would testify that a long period has elapsed since i first habitually addressed it as the picture of a noodle nothing that a noodle does can awaken surprise or indignation the proceedings of a noodle can only inspire contempt thus saying Mrs. Sparsit, with her Roman features like a medal struck to commemorate her scorn of Mr. Bounderby, surveyed him fixedly from head to foot, swept disdainfully past him, and ascended the staircase. Mr. Bounderby closed the door and stood before the fire, protecting himself after his old explosive manner into his portrait and into futurity. Into how much of futurity? He saw Mrs. Sparsit fighting out a daily fight at the points of all the weapons in the female armoury, with the grudging, smarting, peevish, tormenting Lady Scadgers, still laid up in bed with her mysterious leg, and gobbling her insufficient income down by about the middle of every quarter, in a mean little airless lodging, a mere closet for one, a mere crib for two. But did he see more? Did he catch any glimpse of himself? making a show of bits to strangers, as the rising young man, so devoted to his master's great merits, who had won young Tom's place, and had almost captured young Tom himself, in the times when, by various rascals, he was spirited away. Did he see any faint reflection of his own image, making a vainglorious will, whereby five-and-twenty humbugs past five-and-fifty years of age, each taking upon himself the name Josiah Bounderby of Corktown, should for ever dine in Bounderby Hall, for ever lodge in Bounderby Buildings, for ever attend a Bounderby Chapel, for ever go to sleep under a Bounderby Chaplain, for ever be supported out of a Bounderby Estate, and for ever nauseate all healthy stomachs with a vast amount of Bounderby Balderdash and Bluster. Had he any prescience of the day, five years to come, when Josiah Bounderby of Corktown was to die in a fit in the Coketown street, and this same precious will, 
was to begin its long career of quibble plunder false pretences vile example little service and much law probably not yet the portrait was to see it all out here was mr gradgrind on the same day and in the same hour sitting thoughtful in his own room how much of futurity did he see did he see himself a white-haired decrepit man bending his hitherto inflexible theories to appointed circumstances making his facts and figures subservient to faith hope and charity and no longer trying to grind that heavenly trio in his dusty little mills did he catch sight of himself therefore much despised by his late political associates did he see them in the era of its being quite settled that the national dustmen have only to do with one another and owe no duty to an abstraction called a people taunting the honourable gentleman with this and with that and with what not five nights a week until the small hours of the morning probably he had that much foreknowledge knowing his men here was louisa on the night of the same day watching the fire as in days of yore though with a gentler and a humbler face how much of the future might arise before her vision broadsides in the streets signed with her father's name exonerating the late stephen blackpool weaver from misplaced suspicion and publishing the guilt of his own son with such extenuation as his years and temptation he could not bring himself to add his education might beseech were of the present so stephen blackpool's tombstone with her father's record of his death was almost of the present for she knew it was to be these things she could plainly see but how much of the future a working woman christened rachel after a long illness once again appearing at the ringing of the factory bell and passing to and fro at the set hours among the coketown hands a woman of a pensive beauty always dressed in black but sweet-tempered and serene and even cheerful who of all the people in the place alone appeared to have compassion on a degraded drunken wretch of her own sex who was sometimes seen in the town secretly begging of her and crying to her a woman working ever working but content to do it and preferring to do it as her natural lot until she should be too old to labour any more did louisa see this such a thing was to be a lonely brother many thousands of miles away writing on paper blotted with tears that her words had too soon come true and that all the treasures in the world would be cheaply bartered for a sight of her dear face at length this brother coming nearer home with hope of seeing her and being delayed by illness and then a letter in a strange hand saying he died in hospital of fever such a day and died in penitence and love of you his last words being your name did louisa see these things such things were to be herself again a wife a mother lovingly watchful of her children ever careful that they should have a childhood of the mind no less than a childhood of the body as knowing it to be even a more beautiful thing and a possession any hoarded scrap of which is a blessing and happiness to the wisest did louisa see this such a thing was never to be but happy sissies happy children loving her all children loving her she grown learned in childish lore 
thinking no innocent and pretty fancy ever to be despised trying hard to know her humbler fellow-creatures and to beautify their lives of machinery and reality with those imaginative graces and delights without which the heart of infancy will wither up the sturdiest physical manhood will be morally stark death and the plainest national prosperity figures can show will be the writing on the wall she holding this course as part of no fantastic vow or bond or brotherhood or sisterhood or pledge or covenant or fancy dress or fancy fare but simply as a duty to be done did louisa see these things of herself these things were to be dear reader it rests with you and me whether in our two fields of action similar things shall be or not let them be we shall sit with lighter bosoms on the hearth to see the ashes of our fires turn grey and cold end of hard times by charles dickens read by phil benson